and welcome to Political Traction. Violent crime in Canada is on the rise. After a series of high-profile stranger attacks in our biggest cities and terrifying acts of violence in rural communities, Canadians are feeling anxious, and opposition parties are criticizing the federal Liberals. Today on Political Traction, I'm joined by Tristan Hopper, a columnist for the National Post. Tristan and I discussed recent decisions by the Supreme Court regarding bail and sentencing and their effect on public safety and Canadians' faith in the justice system. This is Political Traction. So, Tristan, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. You live in Victoria, in British Columbia, and in the past you've taken to Twitter to talk about worsening drugs and crime, especially in the Lower Mainland. Uh, maybe it's unfair that BC has become the national poster child for drug-damaged communities, but could you tell me, what is it like in BC right now? Oh, no, that's entirely fair. Um, I mean, just look at the statistics. I I, I, be, <clears throat> I think why this has sort of become a national issue is because I, I think there's been a lot of communities, particularly in Ontario. Ontario and Quebec have traditionally been just safer than Western Canada. As soon as you get into Manitoba, it's just higher levels of crime, higher levels of everything bad. Uh, but uh, yeah, every sort of issue of social disorder that is driving people nuts in the likes of Kingston or Barrie uh, kind of started in BC. So BC is always just a vision of coming attractions. Uh, so you could have come here 10 years ago and been like, oh, uh, you know, giant urban tent cities. I hope that doesn't happen everywhere else. And it absolutely did. Um, so uh, on, on the same coin, the same side of the coin, uh, I think you're, you're, we're also sort of a vision of coming attractions in terms of uh, legislative reactions to this. So it's kind of it's very unique in that we have a new premier, David Eby, um, who basically comes in and within days is saying, oh, we need to deal with violent crime. We need I mean, he put in a really harsh uh, sort of bail reform. I mean, if you look at the fine print of this, it's saying like, oh, even if you arrest someone and you suspect they're not going to get a charge, you know, a conviction that results in jail, jail them anyway. Um, so this is a B.C. NDP government. And particularly this is. David Eby. I mean, David Eby was the guy that 10 years ago, uh, you would just call for some like progressive quote about something in the downtown east side. I mean, he was a street level downtown it's, east it's side. A, it's a 180. It's a 180. Complete 180. His, he built his reputation as like a very progressive, uh, you know, focused on, as you say, street level. Yeah. And I think that's probably why he's, I, I do think it's genuine. I, I mean, obviously he's a politician. There's going to be some um, just sort of raw politicking there. I mean, I don't think we should expect politicians to have souls. Uh, but I think if if the 180 is, is sharper, it's because David Eby was never uh, just an academic uh, sort of looking at figures and saying, oh, well, harm reduction will reduce this many deaths. And, you know, I've got this, this sort of janky study that sort of backs this up. Uh, he was right at the street level. So um, if there has been negative consequences of this sort of harm reduction, housing first, et cetera, et cetera, approach. Uh, I mean, that's something he's seen firsthand. Uh, I mean, I'm, I imagine there are people in his social and professional circle who are not alive anymore. Um, and he has seen sort of the negative impacts. So I think, um, yeah, it, it would be easy to frame David Eby as just sort of having done this 180 degree turn to hold on to votes. And absolutely the public opinion is there, the BC NDP would need to take a strong line on this if they wanted to win the next election. But I think you could argue that there's probably uh, genuine sentiments in this coming from him because uh, you can see where it's working and where it is absolutely not working. The voters uh, in the Lower Mainland, specifically in Vancouver, as I understand, this is just my what I'm hearing from Toronto, that they 
elected a pretty tough on crime uh, council as well. It's still, right? yeah, it's still, it's still a Vancouver city council. So it's not like they elected, uh, um, you know, Ken Sim is still talking, you know, he's announcing like, you know, he's going to hire more police officers at the same time he's announcing we're going to hire more, you know, mental health specialists. So it's not, it's not like a, the crazy right-wing government you would get and say, I forget where it was. It was somewhere in the interior where they elected a mayor who was just like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to jail the homeless or something. I'm, I'm exaggerating, right. but it's still a Vancouver mayor. Obviously. But yeah, uh, Kennedy Stewart getting voted out. Uh, there was a number of reasons why. Um, yeah, even people, it's still a progressive city. I don't think anybody's abandoned that. It's not like it turned conservative overnight, but I think everybody you know just too many people have been mugged or had someone in their social circle uh who was subject to a stranger t- attack or uh, had to ride the bus and realized oh this is freaking terrifying uh to ride public transit uh you know i can't go to a playground without you know in- encountering uh, needles so there's just been enough of those negative interactions that people uh, sort of wanted to change so yeah kennedy stewart was the first incumbent mayor in 40 years um, to run for re-election and to lose and lose by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, so I think it's fair to say, yeah, Ken Sim won basically on a public safety ticket. And you, you, so you said that this, uh, well, BC is a, a place that presages what happens in the rest of the country. And now we're seeing it in here in Toronto as well, that we had um, a woman was uh, killed on the TTC in a stranger attack. In a, in a stabbing, I, I take the subway every day, uh, most days into work, and it's it's a lot, you know, hairier. And it, there's been sort of a, a sea change in this, where people are saying, uh, I, I've noticed this particularly in BC. They're saying, well, you know, at, at a raw level, I don't want to live in a neighborhood that's just terrifying, um, and where I'm getting my bike stolen uh, every. But but at the same time, uh, I mean, there are vulnerable people uh, going into these communities and you know, not living very long or not living particularly high quality. So I also have seen um, sort of people who are very, very progressive on sort of the health side of this. And, you know, you can't judge and, you know, uh, saying uh, this is not great for uh, the people actually caught within it. So, right. um, you know, whatever risks and discomforts, um, you know, we're feeling riding public transit. And I, I think it's fine to express those. You can say like, you know, yeah. I just, I don't want um it's, it's always going to be worse for people who are stuck in with it. no of course yeah. of course um yeah and like just broad based according according to pierre polyev uh one of his his latest uh posts he says that under under trudeau we've seen a 32 percent increase in in violent crime now i haven't looked at those numbers and i don't know how substantiated they are but i mean if he's making that claim then uh it, at least, at least the, the he can. At least he thinks that the average person would believe that number. Um, what factors are to blame for the significant rise of violent crime in Canada? Uh, I think, just speaking for the BC example, uh, I mean, there's a reason why this bail issue is becoming, uh, you know, taken up at the federal level. Um, so, you know, there there could be other reasons. That, you know, just but I think the fact that we basically have no apparent mechanism to keep people in jail when they keep committing even pretty heinous violent crimes. Uh, yeah, that's a big contributor. So a couple of years ago, um, you had a letter to uh, who was then uh, John Horgan, uh, the premier, you know, then premier, BC premier, uh, written by 
just a coalition of BC mayors. And these are some of the most progressive politicians in Canada. I mean, this is this is Lisa Helps. This is, uh, you know, the mayor of Nanaimo. And they put out this report saying, like, we've done the homework on this. And, you know, I forget what the term they, they didn't use super criminals, but they said, like, you know, super repeat <laughs> offenders or something. And they're saying, like, the, you know, there there is in some cases, there is a single individual who is causing like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage every month, injuring this many people, having this many police interactions, like a significant share of our police force is devoted towards this one guy. Um, so I think if you're just looking at low hanging fruit of why uh, crime is so high, uh, yeah, I think it's bail. Um, so basically every major horrifying crime uh, that happens in Canada from, uh, you know, the mass stabbing on a Saskatchewan First Nation to the murder of a police officer just two days after Christmas um, to the murder of a Burnaby RCMP officer in a tent city. The one through line, just as a reporter, every time you hear about this, you're like, oh, okay, I'm just, what's the name of the, you know, accused offender? Oh, okay, there's open warrants or he was on bail or whatever. They're out of bail, um, yeah. So I think everybody, uh, and, and it's sort of interesting because because just at the beginning of this week, you had, or last week, uh, you had every premier in Canada putting out um, a statement calling for tougher bail. And this is everyone from Daniel Smith in Alberta uh, to David E.B. in, uh, in B.C. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think anybody can look at the numbers and just say, I, I don't know what he's basing the 32% on. Um, so if you look at it, it's like, you know, slight rises. Like the general crime rate is like going up two or three percent, but then it'll be something like in you know certain cities like Vancouver, like bike thefts up at a hundred percent, or you know right, car yeah. break-ins are up this much, or you know we set up a ten city in this neighborhood, and you know crime is way up around those places. So I think on the just general aggregate, um, it's still modest. It's, it's you know it's not like Venezuela jumps in crime, but just in some categories, it's gotten so bad so quickly. Um, yeah, anybody who has any proximate distance to that is going to notice yeah i there's also a um i think a psychological element to you know every everything touches back to the covid19 pandemic and there's you know a length of time where people weren't going downtown where people weren't leaving their houses that much so they we left our cities and then return a few you know a year or two later and it's like jumping from you know one temperature water into another temperature water as a, as opposed to appreciating a, a, a gradual uh, gradual rise in temperature perhaps that there's... yeah I'd, I'd compare it to having a bad smell in your car when you're in the car you just kind of get used to the bad smell and then you get out and you get back in you're like oh I can I gotta I left some fries on, onto the seat right right so and compared with the fact that everything got worse uh, during the pandemic so yeah you're not entering exactly, cities. Yeah. And then you go back and like here in Victoria, we had to, at the beginning of the pandemic, we shut down all the shelters due to social distancing and then just turned out to be a terrible idea. I uh, said, oh, okay, we'll just have these like managed tent cities that immediately became far more deadly than COVID-19 ever was for, you know, the attic population. Um, so everything got worse and then people sort of took time away. And then when they're, once they're returning to public life, like, oh, I remember when we used to go watch fireworks uh, downtown, or I remember when we used to go downtown, and then realizing, oh, this is uh, this is terrifying and scary, and doesn't seem to be, you know, uh, doing well for people. So I, I think, yeah. yeah, and I what I think has changed uh, in terms of sort of public reactions to homeless. There was a there was a study that my employer, Post Media, um, commissioned, just looking into 
you know, Canadian attitudes towards homelessness. And one thing that was interesting is that the compassion uh, among Canadians is quite high uh, for people experiencing addiction, experiencing homelessness, which I imagine is probably quite different than what you would have found in the 1990s. Uh, so the sentiments of just like lock them up, you know, get a job, uh, those are almost non-existent uh, anymore. And if I was to characterize why that happened, maybe we're just more enlightened, there's been more education, or the fact that because of the opioid epidemic, uh, it's been so broad, um, I think almost anyone in Canada is two to three degrees removed from someone who feasibly could end up on the street. Um, so for all those reasons, I think compassion is quite high, at least what we found in this survey. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's an acknowledgement that whatever we're doing for it uh, isn't working. So the big takeaway from this survey uh, was people were asked, um, you know, spending on homelessness, addiction, all of these things have never been higher. It's, you know, it's the highest it's ever been in national history, like by a factor of a lot. And people were asked, do you see this making a difference? And it was either uh, no, uh, I was not aware that the government was spending money or the government appears to be making it worse, uh, which is not great when you're spending billions upon billions of dollars, um, you would expect some kind of results. So I think what we're seeing now, um, if we're seeing sort of a, you know, a sea change in how Canadians approach crime and root causes, et cetera, is, um, yeah, there's, there's sort of, I, there's not this sort of oppositional feeling there may have been in, in previous decades, but uh, yeah, there's an acknowledgement that whatever is being done, it's obviously bad for everyone. Um, well, there's a, there's a nuance, there's a nuance in people, in people's reaction, right? Like, like even in Polyav's uh, uh, safe supply video, uh, he still treated, he still took a lot of pains to say, uh, that he wanted to be compassionate, that it wasn't that safe supply is not compassionate for yeah. people. And, and, you know, there, there, there's a lot of debate about, you know, the, the policy behind that. I'm not an expert in that. And I don't, I don't think that we're not, we're going to not going to get into that, but he took pains to say, you know, they're the homeless people, drug addicts, they are like, we want to be compassionate towards them. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's gun criminals, there's mass murderers. And that's another yeah. situation. That's another area where uh, Canadians are not compassionate for unless they happen to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada. No, no. And that's these... uh, that's always been a, an interest of mine and a fascination because uh, just in, you know, you can any number of injustices with the system, the fact that we don't have, you know, people don't have clean water on reserves, you know, just clear blaring injustices in the system. It's always struck me that it's incredible um, when you look at some of these releases, because I think a lot of Canadians have this idea that if you commit a heinous crime, you know, I watch TV, I, you know, I see law and order, you just go away for life. It's a life sentence. That's what they said. And then the more of these cases you look at, um, so I guess we're, we're shifting and we're not talking about bail anymore. We're talking about sentencing. Um, like sentencing is just, a, I don't know if you were asking about sentencing, but I could, I could talk about yeah, it as absolutely, well. Actually, absolutely. in the last week <laughs> of um, December, um, there was two um, sort of mass killers um, in, who were, uh, basically approved for release from prison. So one of them was, this was 1980. Uh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, probably shouldn't mention his name. Uh, he shot four people just in a, you know, impromptu mass shooting in Vancouver in 1980. And then the other, other one was basically a serial killer. Uh, this was a guy who abducted two women before he was caught. So he could have done more, uh, tortured and raped them. And one of them was a teenager. And both of them are just approved uh, to sort of walk free four day parole. So um, I've done stories about this in the past about how you know, mass shooters, uh, child murderers, 
everyone you would assume is just sort of going to prison um, forever. No, there's basically no crime you commit with the exception of like Paul Bernardo um, isn't being let out. Uh, yeah, you basically, there's no crime you can commit, commit that's so bad that you're probably not gonna be out on uh, the street in about 25, 30 years. So and, anybody and within the system uh, who's like family members have been a victim of crime, it just destroys them. Um, but I, I, so few people are sort of in that category. It's pretty easy for us to ignore this. And that that is, as you say, that, that, that's disconnected from public sentiment. Like the, oh yeah, absolutely. Thinks. And that's, yeah, that's if we can go into the, I'm sort of, you know, I don't, don't go ahead. Going all over the place here, but yeah, there was uh, there was that recent Supreme Court decision. Uh, this was uh, Bissonnette the Queen or whatever. Um, but this is the one where uh, the guy who shot up the mosque in Quebec City uh, he appeals. Yeah. Uh, so he was it was a, a new bill passed in 2014 which said if you kill multiple people, you have to serve the sentences of parole ineligibility concurrently, uh, consecutively. It used to be concurrently; you'd serve them all right. at once. So you kill 300 people. Uh, you get 25 years per person, but serve them at the same time because, you know, that's how time works. You can just, yeah. <laughs> so it was this rule. Uh, I would call it a common sense piece of legislation because it had been championed by both liberals and conservatives. It was ultimately a, you know, Stephen Harper took it up as his, his baby and put it in the throne speech and whatever. But this was the ending sentencing discounts for multiple murderers. So this was if you killed a whole bunch of people. Uh, yeah. Say you killed four people, you would get 25 years per person. So you're 100 years before you're up for parole. Um, versus, you know, the current system. Uh, the prior system was you serve them concurrently and you're usually approved for early parole. So you kill five people within 21 years, you can start applying for parole. And more often than not, you get it. People assume you don't, but uh, no, the guy who, another Quebec City mass shooting, the guy who went in and, you know, murdered four people in the Quebec National Assembly and could very well have shot up the entire, you know, National Assembly in the 1970s. He's been free for decades. Uh, so anyway, so the Supreme Court said, uh, no, this is unconstitutional. This is a violation of, uh, you know, uh, this is cruel and unusual punishment. And if you read the decision, they say, well, if we have a system in which people are just put in prison without any hope of parole um, at all, you know, even if they shot up a mosque, they're a racist who shot up a mosque, uh, Canadians are going to lose trust in their justice system. So that really stood out to me because any poll you look at, um, people are progressively losing faith uh, in their justice system because so a, because they're being let out like i don't know oh yeah because it's the, the bail issue system. yeah exactly yeah so or, it's, or, it's or, the, or, or their or their sentencing is is being reduced or slashed and and we're letting out people who should yeah. probably never see the light of day ever again. so at the micro level yeah a guy breaks into your car and he's arrested and he's back on the street breaking into more cars uh within and then you know at a macro level uh yeah someone you know abducts and murders a school kid and he's out you know, he was 19 at the time of his crime. He's out by his 40th, 41st birthday. Uh, I mean, this doesn't seem, these are not proportional sentences for the crime. So yeah, if you look at the polls, it's weird. The Supreme Court thinks, oh, you know, if we're, uh, if we're, if we were real hardliners, people are going to lose faith in the justice system. It's a, the exact opposite. Every poll says, uh, we have absolutely no faith that you will deal out in justice to people who deserve it, you know, which is weird for a justice system. And this uh, what was also interesting about the decision is it said, uh, oh, retribution um, as a key principle of the justice system doesn't make any sense. You know, in a free democratic society, we shouldn't have retribution, which directly contradicted earlier Supreme Court decisions from as recently as the 1990s, which said, oh, no, that's absolutely, um, you know, 
a, a reason for the justice system. So I'm generally the belief there's three reasons you have a justice system. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, just public safety. There's dangerous people, get them off the street. Uh, the second one is uh, rehabilitation. That's our favorite one, um, where you, you, you take a kid breaking the banks, you can make them a functioning member of society. And then the third one is uh, retribution. It's just the state saying, uh, this is a bad thing. And we are sort of putting our societal mark on that. And that's that's the one that's probably the first reason we had state run justice systems, because you, you want to get rid of vigilantism. Right. Um, so we've just completely forgot basically two of those. And all we have is rehabilitation. So public safety, we obviously don't care about. And then, you know, the third one, we we're increasingly, you know, we have the Supreme Court saying it's, it's not a big deal. So, yeah, the reason you, you have, have that is sorry. Well, you, you, you mentioned uh, Stephen Harper, uh, my yeah. understanding, and I just, you know, not really politically aware at the time that, you know, back by that I was still in school. My understanding in retrospect is that he came to power saying that he was tough on crime on a pretty tough on crime agenda. And uh, but unfortunately, they a lot of the legislation that they passed uh, wasn't wasn't charter proof. And so it uh, it was either repealed under Trudeau or repealed by subsequent uh, court decisions. Now the issue is becoming more prominent again at the, you know, you know, probably the the back half of the Trudeau time in government. And it looks like, well, I think like conventional wisdom is that the liberals don't want to poke at crime since that's a field that they lose on. So don't mm -hmm. talk, you know, don't talk about crime. Now that it's an issue for them, you have Lametti saying that they are going to maybe look at bail, Trudeau saying maybe we will look at bail. It looks like they're starting to feel the heat on it. So how how can they build credibility? on this issue, knowing that it's a, it's an area that they don't have credibility on. I think it's an area they could have credibility on. So yeah, just going back to the BC example, um, uh, British Columbia members of the new Democratic Party are not really known as standard bearers for tough on crime agendas. And yet, uh, the government you have in place right now is putting on putting in some of the most tough on crime legislation, you know, basically of my generation, you know, I mentioned David Eby's uh, sort of, you know, bail reform. Uh, yeah, it did have uh, elements within it saying, you know, <laughs> even if you're unsure, just lock them up. God damn it. Um, you know, um, so we're at the state now where we might end up going too far. That's fine. We'll probably fix it in, in 15 years. But uh, yeah, I do think uh, this is, you know, I think the liberals have a long history of just going 180 degrees on something um, they've held ostensibly as a principle. And, you know, once the political winds are shifting, that oh, we're doing this thing now, and they're able to sort of cling to power. So I don't really see anything inconsistent in that. Um, you know, spend crazy amounts of money until you know the country's almost bankrupt, and then boom, you're the you're the deficit cutting party. Um, so I, I think it's entirely, given what I've seen so far, you entirely could have, you know, the liberals banging the public safety drum after years of doing the exact opposite, like you know. A big talking point during all of these gun bans uh, was at the same time you had a liberal proposal to sort of reduce uh, mandatory minimum sentences for gun crimes. Um, so, OK, we're going to lock, you know, we're going to ban the transfer of guns, but the actual people doing the shooting and that's, you know, StatsCan data can show you that most of it is done with the legal pieces from the United States. So, you know, right. the people smuggling the guns, we're going to cut down mandatory minimums for them, you know, on equity grounds because, you know, they're disproportionately non-white. Um, so. Yeah, that's been pointed to as a potentially hypocritical policy position. If indeed you want fewer bullets and people from guns, yeah, we do. We do have a a, a weird. I forget the the justice name for it, but it's 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 briefs around 
uh, the way that the justice system approaches uh, sentencing, um, they they will take racial uh, uh, data into into uh, into account. There's a mm, yeah. story in the Globe uh, last week about uh, taking indigenous uh, backgrounds, even if people aren't connected to their indigenous backgrounds, it still needs to be taken into account. You raised yeah. the example of uh, non-white people, people of color in uh, you know, urban handgun uh, crime. Which that's another case that's, account. you know, it's not like we had parliament get together and decide, oh, we as a nation should take, that was the Supreme Court made that up uh, in the Gladue decision, so. Right, Gladue, uh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's so many things as part of our justice system. It's like, oh, well, you know, there must have been some some big national debates and, you know, there was controversy and, you know, a bunch of wise parliamentarians got together and like, no, no, no. It was just some one decision which changed everything from the yeah. Supreme Court. Well, it's another. Is it, so we're not talking as much anymore about uh, the Bank of Canada, but that's another institution that's ostensibly arm's length. It's not really weighed in by uh, by the legislature or by the the, the PMO. Um, but you have these activist decisions being made that impact people's lives, and there's a real political risk there for the for, for the government in power if the, these unpopular or uh, you know disconnected decisions are getting made by places by people like the Supreme Court or the Bank of Canada, and the government just has to hope that there's not as much blowback on them. I guess right. I think uh, what's I, I heard the argument that the reason you're getting kind of these obtuse decisions from the Bank of Canada and the Supreme Court um, is because I think we have a culture of just not criticizing them. Uh, so, you know, the, the Bank of Canada, they know what they're doing. And you're seeing that now. I mean, the Supreme Court comes out with a just, you know, really crappily written decision. And I don't have a law degree, but you look through it and you're like, and I've heard this from other lawyers, like, this sucks. Um, and, you know, the Bank of Canada very clearly did not see inflation coming and screwed this up. We have the records, you know, yeah. we know what your job is and you didn't do the job. You know, we don't have to hang and draw and quarter you, but, you know, can you just admit you didn't see this coming and you had one job and you didn't do it right? right. Um, so whenever that's brought up, you do have this sort of, you know, thing you'll see in, in columns, you'll see it from, uh, you know, politicians saying, uh, you know, you're by questioning, even questioning these institutions, you're like undermining democracy in Canada, which um, is interesting in the, in the US. Um, there's, there's um, in terms of like big difference between the Canadian and the US system. Well, one thing that's always fascinated me is we love our institutions here. So when you do polls, we just, you know, love the Bank of Canada. We love, um, you know, Health Canada. I mean, incredible amounts of trust in our institutions. And we hate our politicians. So if you look at uh, the, the, there's Angus Reid Institute does this like tracker of premier popularity. And it's very rare that any premier is over 50%. Now you go to the United States, exact opposite, hate their institutions. You know, Congress has an approval rating of like 5%. You know, nobody trusts the FBI, the CIA, they really hate, uh, you know, the IRS, and then they love their politicians. So there's so many um, governors, uh, state governors with just approval ratings above 80%. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've always said it's great for the Canadian system that we hate and distrust our politicians and always figure, figure they're up to something. I think it's generally to the benefit of the Canadian system that we usually have a prime minister most people hate, um, you know. It's kind of a memento mori uh, for them. But uh, yeah, you might see this culture shift in which um, these sort of untouchable institutions are starting to screw up 
so much and so regularly uh, that, um, yeah, they are getting more criticism, which could cause them to, you know, stop making these two decisions. One, one, one would hope. Uh, Tristan, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, there's no unified theory to that, but thanks for talking justice. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zeus Eden, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.